It's good to be with you guys. Happy Sunday. Um, I want to welcome those of you who are new and here for the first time. Uh, as Jeff said, I'm the community and teaching pastor here. My name is Sean Little. Uh, I'm really excited to, to be able to preach this morning. Uh, I want to get right into it and take us all on a trip down memory lane. You guys ready to go there with me? <clears throat> okay. When were you first abandoned? When were you first abandoned? When were you last deserted? You guys thought we were going to take a happy trip down memory lane. (laughs) Every one of us has been forsaken. Every one of us has been forsaken. How could he leave me, she thought. We've built a life together. All those years, all of our memories, our experiences, our reputation, our kids. They're exhausted by the question at this point. Uh, So when are you guys going to have kids? So they just say, oh, we're not sure. Uh, And they use that to cover up the fact that they've been trying for years at this point. They've spent tens of thousands of dollars on fertilization treatments. They've argued with one another. They've cursed God. So at this point, they just don't talk about it anymore. It seems like he can't get back on track ever since she died. And so what's the the purpose of his work without her to provide for? What's the purpose of his life without her in it? In the difficult realities that those are just an example of, and we could spend all day uh, communicating other examples, when pain takes our breath away, no matter who you are, no matter what you use to cope, no matter what your coping mechanism is, no matter how much Bible you know, uh, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, all of us feel a bit abandoned, deserted, betrayed, as if God has forsaken us. And certainly, uh, or rather in all certainty, there's someone who's hearing this right now, whether it's in this room or joining us by podcast or app, uh, who's feeling that way right now. And maybe you couldn't tell by looking at them, but they're choking down a, a lump in their throat and fighting back tears because that's exactly how they've been feeling. Where are you, God? Why are you allowing me to suffer in this way? Every one of us has been forsaken including Jesus. And while that may seem like a hopeless reality for us this morning, right? Uh, While that may seem hopeless, I think there's eternal comfort to be found in Jesus' experience of forsakenness. Uh, If you have a Bible or an app, I'd ask for you guys to turn with me and find the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Go ahead and mark that, uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Now, context is king, so as you're flipping back in your Bible or flipping to in your app, uh, I'm going to set the context that leads us to this point where we'll be. Try to imagine uh, that you're flipping back in time as well. The year is A.D. 33. Today is 2015. This year was 33. It's Friday morning, early. The dew is still on the ground, kind of like this morning. But death is in the air. It's killing time. The Romans plan to crucify today. A crowd is gathering at a place that's referred to as Skull Hill beside Main Street leading in and out of Jerusalem so that everyone coming in and out of the city uh, gets the point. 
They know who's in charge. You place yourself at the back of the crowd. You're at the back of the crowd, but that's okay because you can still see everything that's happening. One of the men being crucified is a guy named Jesus. Everyone seems to have heard of him at this point. And some are even saying that he's the Messiah, but what Messiah would be hanging on a tree? The crucifixion begins promptly at 9 in the morning. The Romans were very punctual about these kind of things. The crowd is rowdy and bloodthirsty. They cheer, they laugh, they shout, they taunt. Everyone being crucified, but specifically it seems like the guy in the middle. Because you're in the back of the crowd, you can't really tell, but it looks like he said something to other, one of the other guys that was hanging on a cross as well. Who knows what he said. Some time passes. It's noon now. And strange things are beginning to happen. The sky has gone completely dark. Not dark as in like the gray before a storm comes. Uh, but dark like you can't see your hand in front of your face. That kind of dark. The crowd has stopped talking and laughing and moving. This feels evil. This darkness feels evil. It lasts for about three hours, this darkness does. And all you can hear is the labored breathing of the victims on the cross, groaning and gasping for air. (sighs) Groaning and gasping. Suddenly, you hear a shriek that sends chills through your bones. Though you can't see, you sense it's coming from the man in the middle. And find our place here in verse 46 of chapter 27 that we marked. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which brings us to the first point, and we're going to spend the lion's share of our time here. Jesus was forsaken by God. Forsaken in the Greek is this tricky word, aikatalipo. We use words like that all the time, right? And what it means is to totally and utterly abandon. Totally and utterly abandon. Throughout his life, Jesus had become more than familiar with this kind of forsakenness, this kind of abandonment. Uh, The kind that I mentioned in the beginning that you and I experience when men and women forsake us and abandon us. The same men and women who we love, whom we build a life with, and who we share our lives with. Jesus was familiar with that kind of abandonment. Human abandonment. It's fascinating if you read through the scriptures in John 6, there's a a huge group of uh, disciples who are following after Jesus. And he gives this challenging teaching. And it says many of them leave him after that teaching. He was left by many disciples. Judas Iscariot infamously and blatantly abandoned Jesus for the exact sum of, do you guys know how much? Yeah, 30 silver pieces, 30 silver coins. Then the closer that Jesus comes to the cross, almost like step by step, he's abandoned by his remaining disciples, one by one. Finally, Peter notoriously forsakes Jesus, abandons Jesus three times in a row. Jesus was more than familiar with human abandonment, which is at the heart of what the prophet Isaiah characterized the Messiah 700 years before Jesus shows up. 
Isaiah said that the Messiah was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. So I think it's safe to assume that Jesus wasn't surprised when he was abandoned. uh, But we still see that he suffers. That he grieves. That he aches. Which is one way that Jesus is so similar to you and I. Because when we're abandoned, we suffer, we grieve, and we ache. But here's one way that Jesus is so unlike us, so unlike you and I. Jesus never acted out when he was abandoned. He never acted out when he was abandoned. He didn't scream at the many disciples who were leaving him in John 6. As a matter of fact, he turned to the remaining 12, talked to them, and comforted them. He didn't, you know, square up, pull his pants up, tighten his shoes, take his earrings out, and try to fight with Judas Iscariot when Judas was going to sell him out to the chief priests and and officers. In fact, and, and this is fascinating, he dismisses Judas to go and do so. He didn't plead with or guilt trip or scrutinize or manipulate each of the disciples as they were dropping off one by one like flies. Again, in this way, he's so unlike us. Because when we experience abandonment, when our loved one forsakes forsakes us, our spouse, adultery or divorce, we act out, don't we? We run their name through the gutters. And we make sure that everyone knows everything that's bad on them. We air their dirty laundry out. And that can repeat, that cycle can repeat for a whole entire lifetime. When our expectations aren't met, right? When we don't have those 2.5 kids by the time we're 32 years old, we can feel abandoned as if our, our dreams have abandoned us. And so we curse our spouse or we leave them. We forsake them. We curse God. And we develop some sort of addiction, whether it's to power or to pornography or to alcohol, something that will allow us to cope and feel like we're in control. And when death comes knocking at the door of one of our loved ones, and their life and love abandons us, again, we act out. Our, our hearts harden. We decide that the best way to stay safe is to build walls and to keep people out. Or to lure people in and to hurt them before they can hurt us. And so we can kick them out after that. But you see, Jesus never acted out when he was abandoned. Again, as uh, Isaiah prophesied, he did not open his mouth He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is before its shears, so he didn't open his mouth. Through all of this human abandonment, he was silent. And he was like seriously abandoned, right? We all relate to this abandonment, but he was significantly abandoned, and he stayed silent. Silent even through wrongful arrest. Silent even through imprisonment. Silent through torture and violent thrashing, mockery, ridicule, and crucifixion. Silent. But there was that one time where he broke his silence and he prayed for the men crucifying him. Right? So I guess he wasn't all the way silent. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Silence. Until he was forsaken by God. Silence until he was forsaken by God. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. 
This is disturbing when you start getting your gears going and thinking about this. Jesus forsaken by God. Jesus, one-third of the Trinity, whom from all of eternity enjoyed uninterrupted, intimate fellowship with the Trinity, with the Father, and with the Spirit. A lot of you guys know that I'm married. Uh, a lot of y'all know my wife, Erin. We went camping last weekend. Uh, and, you know, we were just out there Friday night through the weekend. Well, I came home late on Saturday afternoon. I wanted to be fresh and be able to blow dry my hair and get here on time Sunday morning. So I wanted to be well rested. Uh, so on Saturday night, I realized uh, how sad I was to be apart from Erin. I miss just being able to see her. Be in the presence of her. Not, not talk and not take up her time, but just to be with her, to have fellowship with her. That's not sappy or trying to make y'all think I'm a better husband than I am, but to give an indication that after only seven years, there's a fellowship that I enjoy with her. Can you imagine the intimacy and the fellowship that Jesus must have had with the Spirit and the Father throughout all of eternity? And then, in a moment in time, Jesus was forsaken by God, totally and utterly abandoned. Again, this is disturbing because while God chose to forsake Jesus, all throughout the scripture, God chooses not to forsake sinful men and women. Let that kind of marinate for a second. Throughout the scriptures, God does not forsake, God does not abandon, God does not turn his back on sinful men and women. You guys kind of pushing back on that, you're like, hold on a second now, this seems like a little wild idea. God did not forsake Adam and Eve. God did not forsake his people, Israel. God did not forsake King David. That's not to say that there weren't immense consequences to their choice to sin. And the same is true today. There are uh, huge consequences to our choice to sin. Adam and Eve's choice to sin fundamentally altered God's original design for intimacy with men and women. And ushered death into the world and into the human experience. Israel's choice to sin ushered chaos into the community that God had miraculously created. And drawn to himself, chosen for himself. King David's choice to sin caused immense suffering. But, and get this, the natural consequences of our sinning, the natural consequences, reactions to the actions of our disobedience, are not the same thing as God forsaking, abandoning, or turning his back on the same men and women who sin. If anything, uh, God was compassionate to Adam and Eve. He was compassionate to them. After they sin, God like strolls through the garden. He pursues them. He has a conversation with them. He talks with them. He asks them what's going on. And when he finally brings up the fact that they sinned, he doesn't cut them off immediately. He explains to them what the consequences of their sin is going to be. And then he ushers them out of the garden where they enjoyed fellowship with him. But not before slaughtering an animal uh, and like handcrafting garments for them. To put on them. To clothe them. And to comfort them. And to protect them from the wilderness that they were going into. 
God showed this same compassion with his people, Israel, the stubborn, wayward, idolatrous nation whom he chose to love, slow to anger, long-suffering. God exhibited the same compassion and tenderness towards King David. And I've kind of preached on King David uh, earlier this year. So God said of King David, and this is famous, you guys know this, that King David is a man after my own heart. And again, we kind of sat back and we're like, that's weird because King David was a murderer. And he was disobedient. And he was sexually deviant. That David is the, the David that God said, this is a man after my own heart. Because of this reality of who God is and how he chooses to interact with men and with women, that's the reason that King David was able to write, I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I was young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And I couldn't uh, pass up the opportunity to talk about this paradox. So here's a paradox for you guys, all right? This is for y'all to figure out. King David wrote that, but then he also writes, There is no one who does good, not even one, which the Apostle Paul later sort of summarizes and repeats. He says, There is no one righteous, not even one. So my question is, how do we explain this paradox? I have never seen the righteous forsaken, and there is no one righteous. Doesn't that seem like a paradox to y'all? Give me some feedback now. I know it's Sunday morning. Talk to me. Okay. A little bit. Okay. I can lead you to where we can find the answer uh, to that paradox. Do you guys want to follow me as I lead you there? Okay. Pull out your programs real quick. And I'm going to open them up. Right to that middle section. You'll find all the answers to this paradox and many more paradoxes in your very own city life group. Which, for those of you who are yet to be involved in a city life group or people who call City Church home, uh, opening up their homes throughout the week uh, at at various times uh, to talk about life, to share, to pray, to ponder these mysteries, and to solve these paradoxes that I cannot solve. So if you want to be involved in a city life group, uh, you can sign up immediately outside in City Square or follow the links right there. That's where you're going to find the answers to the paradox. So again, the paradox is, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, and yet there is no one righteous, which makes our first point, we're still at the first point, Jesus was forsaken by God, all the more disturbing. Jesus was forsaken by God. Jesus, the righteous one, the only righteous one, perfect, flawless, the only human, uh, holy human who has ever lived, forsaken by God. God chooses not to forsake sinful men and women, but God chooses to forsake his sinless self, his sinless son. What? I think the better question is why, uh, which brings us to our second point. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I would not have to be. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I would not have to be. As I studied through this, it almost struck me like, a, like an aha moment, like one of those cartoon light bulb moments. 
I've been a Christian for 12 years, and the opportunity to unlearn, like we see these banners on the sides of the room, the third one says unlearn. The opportunity to unlearn kind of snuck up on me this week, and that opportunity is ever before me. And so I want us to unlearn for a second together. Our human notions of of who God is, our human ideas of, of who God is and how he operates must be confronted and corrected through the truth of the gospel, through the lens of the gospel. To read through the scripture is to be confronted with a God who seems to be looking and longing for a reason, any reason not to abandon people, not to turn his back on people. People who seem hell-bent on screwing up. But he wasn't looking And he wasn't longing for any reason. All the while, he had a lone reason in his mind. He had a Messiah. I've borrowed from Isaiah 53, if you want to jot that down and take a look at it on your own time, uh, to highlight the character of the Messiah. And in that same chapter, Isaiah goes on to say about the Messiah, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Paul unpacked this reality, and we'll flash this up on the screen because I think it's heavy. As Paul unpacked this reality, here's what he wrote. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Peter grapples with this same truth. And he writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. This is, uh, this is another part of that unlearning. Christ suffered once for sins. Which means God is not interested in making you suffer for your sins. Let me say that again. Christ suffered once for sins. God is not interested in making you suffer for your sins. In other words, sin is hideous. It's so hideous that it drove a spotless lamb to the slaughter. It's so hideous that it drove Adam and Eve out of a perfect place with the perfect presence of the perfect person. It's so hideous that it drives us apart from one another. Racism and classism, nationalism, greed, war, slavery, poverty. It's so hideous that it drives us apart even from our own selves. Our own well-being as we pursue the very evil and wickedness. Seeking self over everything that destroys us and all the people in our path. In other words, sin is so hideous, but it does not condemn us because God chose to condemn Jesus for us. Isn't that interesting? See, Jesus is the personification of that that paradox that I talked about earlier. He's the righteous one forsaken by the God 
who never forsakes the righteous. Because God is holy and he's blameless. God is pure. God is just. And without justice, God would not be God. Justice, full and uncompromised justice has to be served. God has to serve that justice. And so Jesus willingly became our substitute. The substitute for all of humanity. Jesus is the substitute paying the cost of forsakenness for the sins of Adam and Eve. Jesus is the substitute paying the cost of forsakenness for the sins of Israel. Jesus is the substitute paying the cost of forsakenness for the sins of King David. And here's where we bring it home. Jesus is the substitute paying the cost of forsakenness for your sin, for my sins, for the sins of our friends. And here's the one that we really don't like, for the sins of our enemies. Jesus is the substitute paying that cost that only he can pay, forsakenness, for the cost of sins. For all of sin, for all of people, throughout all of time, Jesus is the substitute. There's this uh, beautiful story that I've kind of been captured by over the years, and I always go back to it. You can find it in John chapter 8. If you want to jot that down, you can read it on your own time. It's referred to as the woman caught in adultery. And I think it's such like a a bird's eye view into, into the human condition. Uh, so there's a group of guys. They're very religious. They're very zealous. They're very judgmental. And they find this woman caught in the act of adultery. They find her. How do you find that kind of a person? You look for them. In the act. It's not like it was going on on the street uh, or in a public place, you look for that person caught in the act of adultery. So this group of guys, real righteous and zealous and law-abiding, real religious folks, how I see it is that they run in the room while adultery is happening, and we're grown-ups, we can use our imagination, and they grab her, right? They grab this woman, and they drag her out of that scene. I don't imagine they let her got dress or do her hair, put her makeup on, Uh, The heart that would find a woman in that circumstance wouldn't care about people seeing her in that condition. So they grab her out of the room. They bring her before Jesus, throw her down in front of Jesus, and say, hey, our law tells us that we're supposed to stone this woman. What do you say? And Jesus, the same silent Jesus that we talked about earlier, (laughs) turns his back on him, doesn't say anything, starts scribbling in the dirt. And I wonder what he was writing there. Like maybe he was writing some raps. Right? He's like, let me get back. Let me get back to my raps. I wonder what he's writing. And then they provoke him some more. They say, all right, what do you have to say? And you guys know what he said. Whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. Cast the first stone. And so the scripture in John 8 says that the oldest left first. And what I understand is that the oldest were standing closest to him because they couldn't hear him. So the oldest dispersed first. And then slowly, one by one, everyone left because they knew that they couldn't cast the first stone because they were not without sin. And so Jesus, right, this Jesus, our Jesus, that we talk about every single week, was left with this kind of a woman. And maybe I'm assuming, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but a woman who was naked, who had just been torn from the uh, involvement of adultery, is before Jesus. They're alone by themselves, one another. And Jesus asked her, uh, did they condemn you? And she says, no. He says, then neither do I. I don't condemn you. And why does that matter? Because Jesus was without sin. 
Jesus is the one who could have thrown that first stone. And then he tells her, go and sin no more. And I've heard that verse, what I think, and and, and maybe I'll have to make an argument for it. I've heard that verse perverted. Go and sin no more. If you have a real interaction with Jesus, then you're going to care about not sinning. And I think there's a legitimacy to that. Uh, But anyone that I've met, regardless if they've been a Christian for one year or ten years, still sins in some capacity. All of us do. So what I see in Jesus saying, go and sin no more, is an invitation to not sin. Because sin is hideous. It destroys us. It destroys our relationship with one another, with our neighborhood, with our community. It destroys our opportunities. Ultimately, it destroys our intimacy and our fellowship with Jesus, with God. Sin is hideous. It destroys. Jesus isn't yoking this lady with perfection. He's giving her an invitation out of imperfection. Go and sin no more. And again, as I was uh, reading this week, studying for this sermon... I read something that I've never read before. It's in uh, Hosea chapter 11. And this is God talking to Israel. Israel, the people that he had created for himself in the Old Testament. Uh, And it's just so beautiful. Uh, It almost took my breath away. So let's read through and hear how he talks about sinful people. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called... The more they went away from me. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was one like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and bent down to feed them. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. How can I give you up, Ephraim? Which is a smaller portion of Israel. How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. See, God is nothing like us. The gospel, the good news that Jesus was forsaken, the righteous, by God, for the unrighteous. Jesus, for you and I, is no mere human invention. Who would think of something so scandalous? For he is God, not a man. The Holy One is among us. Will you guys pray with me? Father God, we thank you for uh, your 180 degree way of relating to us that is completely different than what we expect God to be like. We expect a God who we absolutely get glimpses of throughout the scripture, uh, the God who is swift to judge. Uh, who's swift to punish evil, the God who uh, gives law and has expectations. We expect that God, and in that expectation, we blind ourselves to the only one who could fulfill all of those expectations, the Lord Jesus. Jesus, we want to relate to you like the adulterous woman. We want to see our shortcomings. We want to see our inability to be perfect. We want to experience you. We want to be uh, changed by you. And we want to take you up on your offer uh, to to be free of sin, to go and sin 
no more. God, I pray that uh, you would bless City Church. Uh, that you would bless the city of Evansville uh, through City Church, that as we work down and allow the gospel to work into us, that we would be changed, uh, that we would not treat people uh, according to their sins and their shortcomings, but we would treat them according to the gospel, uh, and we would treat ourselves according to the gospel that is uh, scandalous and, and, and heavy and not man-made. Lord, I pray that you uh, would grow whatever seeds were sown this morning, that we would think properly of you uh, for our good, for the good of those who are around us, and for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.